This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Happy whatever time of day it is to all of you beautiful people. Happy Sunday. Happy whatever day it is after you listen to this. I don't know if this is going to be found in like a hundred years and some time capsule after, you know, Russia and Ukraine have nuked the entire world at this point. But anyway, wherever you're coming from, can you dig it? I can. And welcome to another episode. So this week is going to be a deep dive into a topic that I've wanted to, I would say, discuss for a while. I, I've talked about this a lot recently, but I think I've wanted to express this specific viewpoint and this specific idea for a while. And it's a relatively controversial one, I'd say, because I don't think a lot of people associate these two concepts with one another. But I do think that there are merit, there is merit, excuse me, to linking the two together just because of all of the, you know, the, the bleh, the toxicity, the nonsense that kind of comes out of both, you know, ideas and how they interact with one another. So anyway, I've been thinking a lot about this recently and how people have used the two things in conjunction with one another to either exploit people or to send out a false narrative about something or some other topic or concept of the idea, whatever have you. And I think they're very, very interesting to see what they can do when linked together. So I wanted to kind of put this together to see how it fleshed out itself and, you know, kind of looped in some other things per usual like I do and, you know, kind of reference other and bounce things off one another and everything else. And I think it's a pretty compelling case to be made for a lot of people. And I really wanted to hammer the home of just at the end of the day, self-reliance and being self-sufficient and competent in one thing would help everybody make better decisions about themselves, about their improvement, about their lives, everything else involved. So without further ado, let's get into it. So the Buddha once said, holding on to anger is like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. While anger is a fitting emotion for this premise, there are many other things that can fit its bill. So many things that we hold on to can destroy us. So many dreams we cling to can derail us. So many things that we seek to cause us to lose ourselves. It is these things that we chase that eventually wear us down so much that they completely overtake us. This summer, Disney Plus released the must-anticipated series Obi-Wan Kenobi. Set at the midway point between the third and fourth film, spoiler alert, by the way, I should have said that earlier, the, galaxy, or the series follows Obi-Wan Kenobi after the great fall that happened to the galaxy ten years prior. For Star Wars nerds such as myself, this is an absolutely massive moment in the series. Contrary to what much of the culture has said, the prequel films were defining moments for an entire generation that grew up with them. To some degree, we all felt cheated when they ended. What happened in the 20 years before our parents' generation fell in love? Where did everyone go? Why did they go there? There were so many questions, and we were all hoping and praying that this limited series would give us the answers we sought. In this series, we see Obi-Wan, my personal favorite character in this entire saga, I've told you that multiple times already, as the one thing he had never was prior. Broken. Obi-Wan Kenobi is a shattered form of his former self, both to us and, more importantly, himself. He has completely shut himself off from the Force. He has shirked all responsibility. He has become incredibly nihilistic and weak about the state of the galaxy and what his role in it is helping to become freed from the tyrannical empire. So in relation to the quote above, what is Obi-Wan holding on to? It's certainly not anger. Even though he has largely given up his Jedi ways, Obi-Wan is still smart enough to avoid that trap. It's not hopelessness either. Even though he embodies it with the way he acts and speaks, he still has hope due to the fact that he looks after his former apprentice's son, Luke. What Obi-Wan holds on to is something that we are all guilty of holding on to for far too long and far too often. Failure. 
Obi-Wan's failures are what imprison him to the shell of the man that he is throughout this limited series, or at least most of the limited series. And to be fair to Obi-Wan, his failure is not the typical run-of-the-mill fuck-up. Far from it, actually. His failure caused the collapse of a civilization, the death of nearly all of his friends, imposed tyranny on the entire galaxy, and tens of millions of deaths. It haunts him every single day. It is with him in every single step that he takes, and with every breath of air that he takes into his body. He can bury his lightsabers in the desert all he wants. He can try to hide who he really is. But who he is, and who we all are, is all of us. We are all of who we are, even if we don't like what we see. And who Obi-Wan is, is his biggest failure. The one who allowed that failure to destroy so many people and things. Darth Vader. Anakin Skywalker, before he became Darth Vader, was a simple but troubled boy. Born into slavery on the hellish desert planet of Tatooine, all Anakin wanted to ever do was escape. He would look to the stars every night and hope that someone would come take him away. He built ships and vehicles from nothing, but could not build one powerful enough to take him to freedom. He would constantly encounter people in the markets and shops, but no one who could truly fulfill his dreams. That all changed when a then nine-year-old Anakin Skywalker had a chance encounter with Obi-Wan Kenobi and their band of misfits. Helping Obi-Wan and his master Qui-Gon Jinn fix their ship by winning a race, Jinn freed Skywalker by winning a bet gambling on that race. Jinn, having an intense interest in Skywalker due to a high force sensitivity, wanted to take Anakin to be trained as a Jedi. After an emotional goodbye to his mother, the only person who had ever loved him, Anakin left his rock of a home to go with the two Jedi and their crew. Jin turned out to be more correct than they thought. Anakin turned out to be the most powerful Force user to ever be brought into the arms of the Jedi. After pushing through some resistance from the Jedi Council about his age and emotional instability, Anakin was officially accepted as a Jedi. However, after Jin was killed by the Sith Lord Darth Maul, his former Padawan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, lobbied with the Jedi Council to fulfill his master's dying wish of adopting Anakin as his apprentice. The Council, once again, reluctantly accepted. Throughout the next 13 years, Obi-Wan and Anakin became inseparable. They were the best of friends and developed a deep bond and connection with one another. While also being very beneficial, it was also very revealing. The two knew nearly everything about one another. Anakin knew that Obi-Wan had flaws, including the desire of romance and anti-establishment sentiment that would alienate him from the Jedi Order. Obi-Wan also knew that Anakin was a time bomb, with a fierce love of his friends and a desire to protect them at all costs that were forbidden to Jedi from having. Things started to go south as soon as Anakin began having force-induced dreams about his mother. Dreaming that she was being horribly tortured, Anakin set out with his love interest who helped rescue him, Padme Amidala, to find her. And find her he did, in the exact state that he had dreamt. Beaten, raped, scarred, and tortured. Anakin, his emotions welling over him, completely snapped. He slaughtered the entire village of people that had held her hostage, including women and children that had nothing to do with her capture and enslavement. He, understandably, kept the secret from everybody except for Padme. He, understandably, also let no one know but her that he enjoyed it, too. This started a rampant drive of Anakin's toward insecurity regarding his own abilities. And this is completely unnecessary. Anakin was the most gifted force user to ever exist. He knew that, and everyone else knew that. If Anakin couldn't do something, it most likely couldn't be done by anyone else. But Anakin didn't see it that way. Even though he had nothing to do with his mother's death, he still felt responsible for it. In his controlling and narrow-minded approach, there was only one way he could prevent something like that from happening again. Obtaining more power. In Anakin's mind, in an insecurity that he'd again only voiced to Amidala, the only way to prevent something, someone he loved from dying was to become the greatest Jedi ever. Additionally, he knew that no one in the Jedi could teach him how to do this. The Jedi, in theory, and that wasn't actually true in actuality, but that's a whole other conversation, abhorred power. They only sought to become powerful to keep the peace throughout the galaxy. However, Anakin had only one person in his life other than Amidala or Kenobi that he could fully trust. One that had looked out after him since he had arrived with Jin and Kenobi all those years ago. One who, currently, was the most powerful being in the galaxy. Sheev Palpatine, the former, a former diplomatic colleague of Amidala and the current Chancellor presiding over the Galactic Republic, had been looking out for and grooming Anakin for almost the exact same amount of time that he had known both Amidala and Kenobi. He had constantly encouraged Anakin to follow his instincts and stoke his feelings. 
he, quote, wanted the best for him. He didn't like how the Jedi were, quote, using him and, quote, holding him back. He frequently stroked Skywalker's ego, saying that the Jedi were afraid of him because of his power. In many ways, he claimed that he would be better off without them. He was and could do better in his eyes. Unfortunately for Anakin, the dreams returned, this time about Amidala. Fearing the worst, Anakin was forced into a corner. He knew that what he did before with his mother didn't work. He had to chart a new course, and that course was away from Kenobi and the Jedi. In his view, the promises that Palpatine was making seemed like the only possibility to save Padme, whom he had married and was expecting children with, in secret. So, reluctantly, he gave himself completely to Palpatine and the Sith, and he turned out to be the most powerful Sith Lord to ever live, when the Jedi had been hunting for almost 15 years. But little did Anakin know what Palpatine's true intention with him were. Unfortunately for Anakin, Palpatine did not care for him at all. He only wanted to use him as a tool, a controlling mechanism in his Machiavellian pursuit of power. And use him he did. Anakin became Palpatine's personal bludgeon, ripping everything who opposed him to shreds. Desperate to save his wife and children, Anakin surrendered who he was and did Palpatine's bidding completely and fully. Obi-Wan, thankfully, survived the initial wave of betrayal that saw the destruction of the Galactic Republic, Jedi Order, and overall freedom across the galaxy. On orders from the remaining Jedi that survived, he confronted Anakin with Padme in an attempt to bring him back. Completely lost in his own lust for power, Anakin choked out and killed Amidala in anger and engaged Kenobi in a duel. Blinded by his hubris, Anakin lost to Kenobi in brutal fashion. After chopping off both of his legs and an arm, he slipped into a fire of molten lava and was viciously burned from head to stub. Thinking his former best friend would be consumed by the fire and burned away, a broken Kenobi left him to die. But he didn't die. Much of Anakin Skywalker was lost forever. But one thing sustained him. His hatred. Now, without his best friend and wife, all Anakin had left was the, quite literal, broken and hollow soul that once had so much promise and vibrance. He was unrecognizable, someone who had risen so high and fallen equally as far. So this is obviously an extreme and made-up example. However, we would be foolish to say that there is nothing that could be learned from that example. In fact, there is a large lesson that can be learned from this. It is something that we are all guilty of far too often. We all participate in it. It is something that we don't like to admit that we do, but one that we do do regardless. The sooner you give up your sovereignty to another person and place yourself on the weak side of the toughness gap, the sooner you give up control over the outcome of your life. The two are linearly correlated. You cannot have one without the other. They go hand in hand in every possible scenario and outcome. Even though there is a certain amount of luck involved in life, there is not nearly as much as someone have you believe. For the most part, good decision-making and personal agency are the things that make a good life possible. One popular solution that steps in line with this is both the concept and the industry of self-help. Ever since it was invented by the combination of Nietzsche and Napoleon Hill over a century ago, the genre has taken the world by storm, unleashing billions of dollars, thousands of books, and dozens of sub-industries on the back of one concept. It has resulted in numerous people skyrocketing from nobodies to superstars, and engaging with millions in an attempt to make themselves better. But it is a lie. And here's why. No one can, or is, truly helping themselves if they're seeking help from someone else. That's the complete opposite of what the industry says, actually and obviously. No matter what a guy yelling at you on high from a stage at a manifestation convention in Vegas screams, self-help is, mostly, a fraud. Help is a team sport, and must be treated as such. One of the most disturbing trends that I've seen recently is the fervent willingness for a good portion of the population to shoe self-reliance and competence. And what are they shooing it for? Well, for someone else to take up their burden, obviously. If this confuses you, you're not alone. I find this to be a tremendously puzzling proposition. How can a society itself with, quote, self-obsessed, quote, with, quote, self-help be so simultaneously obsessed with not wanting to take ownership over their lives? 2 plus 2 does not equal 4 in this equation. Something is dramatically wrong. This is not to say that those who truly need help should not seek it. That's not what this post is trying to accomplish at all. I'm all for people seeking all the help they believe that they are in a place to seek it. Not getting help when you need assistance with something is a very destructive and redundant thing to do, 
Not to mention being a stupid thing when you're in dire straits. But it is to say that we should be taking more onus on certain situations than we currently are. This contradiction of terms, this saying of wanting to help ourselves when we clearly don't help ourselves at all, must be sorted out completely. We are not doing either. In fact, we are enabling ourselves to actually become worse. One of the primary mechanisms for this to happen is the entrance of many bad actors into the scene. These actors, mostly grifters who want to extort a cheap buck out of irresponsible and weak people, have come into the, quote, self-help space and polluted it. They have come like vultures to a spot of roadkill, to pick up the scraps, scrape the bodies of all sustenance, and leave it to a husk of its former self. Not unlike Darth Vader, although hopefully without the burns and wife of the broken neck and heart. The opportunity for power and profit within this demographic is enormous. It's also malicious. It defeats the noble purpose of seeking help when truly needed in the first place for the cheap and misplaced convenience of it being available at the ready whenever someone should want it. But it doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to be either Darth Vader nor Roadkill, although you can argue which option is better. We have the opportunity to truly get by help by helping ourselves. But first, we must escape its control. And to do this, we must first see why, quote, self-help always bends towards control in the first place. Second, we must see why people give up that control so easily. And lastly, we must know what we can do as individuals to build self-reliance instead of reaching out for self-help. Because then, hopefully, we can avoid the whole falling into a river of fire thing, because that would obviously be an ideal scenario. If you're looking for kick-ass Instagram accounts to follow, start with at after school, at A-F-T-E-R-S-K-O-O-L. Run by a mysterious artist and followed by a cultural behemoth such as Jordan Peterson, the account has grown astronomically in following throughout the last year. The artist, relying on his very good artistic sketching abilities, has a very niched and provocative way of communicating with his audience. That's what art should be in my estimation a pushback on orthodoxy and a call to heterodoxy when it's both appropriate and inappropriate to do so. That niche that After School dives into is one of rebellion. Much like the sequel trilogy of the one that defined Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi, the rebellious nature of After School is one that is deemed dangerous by those in power and necessary to those that are skeptical of it. The sketches that After School draws, rife with critique of authoritarianism and censorship, has one primary message. Beware centralized control. After school is not simply a political apparatus. There are certainly critiques of government regime across the page, but there are also some symbols that flicker in it that have nothing to do with government. Golden arches. An apple with a bite out of it. A smiley face that turns into an arrow at the end of it. An infinity sign that's twisted up and emblazoned over a lowercase f. And the people. Oh, the people. Always the same, yet so very different. Fat, sloppy bodies dripping off the side of the campus, canvas or page. Drool coming in waterfalls out of their mouths. Eyes glazed over as they slovenly gaze upon the mythical powers of their devices that capture any and all of their attention. Screaming and yelling in frenzied violence of action whenever someone has the gall to call them out on how much their lifestyle is poisoning them and everything around them from their self-indulgent obsession with McDonald's, Apple, Amazon, Meta, and Facebook. Centralized control can broadly be defined as anything with more power than it probably should have. For example, should McDonald's really be propping up children's hospitals and encouraging kids to get active while feeding them chemicals loaded with sugar, salts, and fats? Should Apple really be hiring DE&I advocates when they rig nets outside of Chinese factories to prevent their slave workers from killing themselves? Should Amazon really have a near monopoly over both online retail and cloud computing software? Should Meta and Facebook really be trying to merge the physical and metaphysical worlds together by tailoring their marketing towards the younger generation? The answer to all of these is probably not, and definitely not if I had to say in it. But as mentioned before with self-help, the only reason that there is a market for all of these companies to engage in this type of corporate malfeasance is because the consumer demands it. There must be a push to the pull, a yin to the yang of all these decisions made across both corporate boardrooms and government institutions. That is the market that after school serves. One who both notices this trend happening is disgusted with how much people, most certainly themselves, continue to fall for their bullshit and suck their dicks in obedience. 
After School also has a vastly growing YouTube channel. What's different, but also remarkably cool, about the channel is that After School takes a speech or soundbite from a person who he admires and draws an ever-expanding sketch as this person narrates from behind. It's truly amazing to watch. And the one that caught my eye when being drawn to his content was one whom everyone needs to hear from much more often than they currently are. My love for Tim Dillon's work as a comedian and commentator grows by the day. Patrick Bed David has a list of people that he believes are, quote, important for cultural discussion. And even though Dillon has admitted repeatedly that no one should take him seriously about anything, I think it's borderline blasphemous that he didn't make the list. Tim Dillon and After School are a match made in heaven. He is the perfect complement to After School's work because most of his comedy is centered around what After School pushes back on, namely, centralized control and those who oppose freedom. The title of the After School Tim Dillon video was, quote, The Big Lie. The origins of the original Big Lie are, in fact, quite sinister. The original Big Lie was pioneered in the Third Reich by evil propaganda mastermind Joseph Goebbels, who used the media to spread falsities about Jews to make them enemies of the state. Therefore, any reference to a current, quote, Big Lie is loosely defined by the willing participation of the media and other establishment types to spread something through the systems of power in order to influence a large group of people with malice. And the big lie that Tim Dillon spoke of was this. Everyone is special. Tim Dillon has said before, most notably on his appearance on Lex Friedman's podcast, that this advice was the single most destructive thing that was told to millennials as they were coming of age. Sure, there were a large amount of fuck-ups, which Dillon acknowledges. But there is such a thing as being given bad advice. It would be foolish not to weigh that in as a hefty factor into our analysis when discussing these things, because it's simply too big of a variable to be left out. But let's say that the big lie is true. So, why are we seeing so many troubled people in our world? Why can't they just be, quote, special, and why can't they just, quote, special their way out of the problem? To these people, and to Dylan, this is a very confusing thing. If everyone is special, why aren't more people acting like it? If everyone is destined for greatness... Why is there such little greatness out there in the world? And the key, according to the spreaders of the big lie, is this. Execution. All you need to accomplish your dreams, you see, is something to bring it out of you. A five-point plan. A life hack. A way to cheat the system. A strategy. A daily planner. A workout routine. Anything and everything that can put you on the fast track to your new life as one of the, of, as one of the enlightened. And the good thing for you is, there are plenty of people that provide these things. All it takes from you is two things, and you'll be able to live the life that you've always wanted to live. The first thing you'll have to give up is money, and most likely lots of it. You'll have to pay for individualized coaching, of course. You'll also have to buy that person's book and listen to their podcast twice a week. Maybe they make dietary supplements and donate 15% of the proceeds to starving African children. They probably donate 20% of the pre-workout sales to fluff their numbers just that bit more. The second, and infinitely more important thing, is your time. You'll also have to sink ungodly and untold number hour, numbers of hours into crafting your new life as one of the enlightened. You'll have to give this person everything, because anything less than everything is unacceptable. Be obsessed or be average, as the old saying goes. Anything that doesn't equate to that, and you're not trying nor working hard enough. Anything that doesn't equate to that, and you deserve to stay where you are, amongst the filth and swine of the place you crawled out from. The big lie is obviously not true. The advice of, quote, you can be whatever you want to be is not true. You're not missing execution. You're probably just not that special. That is perfectly okay. It's a perfectly okay situation to be in. I am not special. Most people are not special. This should be the standard, but it's not. The reason why it's not is for one reason and one reason only. Money. Because how these people make money is by controlling those aforementioned two things from other people, their time and their money. Time and money are the two most valuable resources on the planet to most people. They are absolutely precious and can de dramatically determine the success or failure of large parts of your life. While time is infinitely more valuable than money, as discussed, it would, again, be foolish to say that money did not matter at all. So what happens when you remove two very valuable resources from people that possess them? Well, for reference, look at what has happened to the United States since we lost energy independence after reverting our resources from our robust stores of oil and gas to green energy. Inflation in our country has peaked at its highest point in 45 years. 
People don't realize the importance of being energy independent in our economy. The importance of energy independence is due to the fact that energy affects everything. A big question that people who dispute this has been, why are things like food affected by oil and gas? And this is a good question, to be fair, and one that can be explained. So let's take a supermarket, for example. How did food get to the supermarket? Well, it probably comes from a ranch or farm, which takes electricity to run. Most of America's electricity has gotten from burning fossil fuels. It then has to be processed and shipped, most likely by truck, also powered by fossil fuels. It then has to be packed, refrigerated, and stored. The processes that power the packing, the fuel that powers the refrigerators, and the operations that get the lights on at the supermarket are outpowered by burning fossil fuels. All of those costs go up when the price of gas goes up. That money then gets passed, at least to some degree, and I would argue most degree, onto the consumers who buy those goods and services to help the business that produces them not go under. It's a gigantic ripple effect, one that affects anything and everything surrounding it, particularly those in the very bottom of the pillar. The people that are now in control of these things, mostly due to the ineptitude of our expert and ruling classes and the mob that does their bidding, are now using them to nuke our economy and making all of us suffer. That's what happens when you take the most valuable thing in an economy and use it as a weapon against those who need it the most. It's a nefarious and sometimes evil tactic, but no one can, deny its, can at least deny its efficacy. The same thing is true of a value economy. One of the most important parts in defining and creating your values that you, is that you need to think of is the aspect of control. You need to be able to control what you value because they are your values after all. It wouldn't make sense if you didn't. If you shun control of the things that govern your life, you could potentially put in jeopardy your life itself. It's not a very good strategy, nor a smart one. Back to time and money. If you willingly give those up in abundance to someone who makes an empty claim after empty claim of how they can improve your life while you do nothing, a red flag should shoot up almost immediately. Time and money, as mentioned, are two of the most valuable, if not the most valuable, resources that you can possess. Giving them up to someone else automatically makes you weaker. It removes all advantages that you would have in willing them to your benefit. It allows them to sink their claws deeper into your soul in an attempt to gain greater control over you. The funny thing about this occurs when people realize their control that they possess. Humans are, in most senses, remarkably predictable creatures. We like and don't like certain things that we don't really change depending on who that person is. The one thing that humans don't like above all other things is a feeling of powerlessness. The one thing that humans do like above all other things is a feeling of control and stability. This is the reason why all self-help bends to control. Whenever you are dealing with people, whether you're an Instagram influencer or a salesperson, you do better in your chosen profession when the people that make up your living do what you want them to do. When you're properly supported and given influence by people that make up your living and your lifestyle, you enjoy that feeling a lot. And this is understandable. If you didn't, you probably wouldn't last very long in the field that you currently, be, you currently inhabit. People are more than eager to capitalize upon this and they realize it. They want to show it to the world. They proclaim themselves as, quote, experts and gurus, two of the most disgustingly overused and vile words on this planet, because most of them are really neither of those things. They're more akin to a five-year-old who snorted fun dip powder. I messed that up. Jeez, I fucked that punchline up. They're more akin to a five-year-old who snorted fun dip powder. Fun in the short term, but depressing and sad in the long. Humans, being humans, should mostly know this. Humans aren't dumb. They're able to see patterns and trends. So if they can and do, then why are most willing to give up control so easily? Never multitask when doing a podcast, guys. You're, um, I love you guys. I do. I just, I just got to do. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of busy at this moment. So fully dedicated to doing this, though. So your favorite podcast host is not abandoning you. Don't worry. Maybe I'm not your favorite podcast host. I don't know. I'd ever talk to Rogan about that when I see him in a comedy show in Austin next. So if there's one question we have to ask after all that we've covered so far, it would be this: Why? 
why do people give up control so easily? If self-help and the decently fraudulent industry that helps profit from it and promote it willingly make the people that people it lies about helping weaker and not able to defend themselves more, then why are people flocking to it in such astronomically high numbers? It's a very interesting and puzzling question. On paper and when using logic, it makes little to no sense whatsoever. But human beings aren't always the most logical people who like to write down things on paper before pursuing something. As shown by the two E's, human beings are emotionally driven creatures. We don't necessarily think of a lot of things before, through before we do them. We like to think with our dicks, feelings, and hearts. When it's convenient for us to do so, we forego what we see as an unnecessary hindrance to jump headfirst into a deep pool that in actuality is just enough to snap your neck as soon as you take the leap. The first reason that I would point to for this strange phenomenon's occurrence is that it is largely encouraged by society. American society and a lot of societies around the world that, thankfully for us, are much worse off than we are, does not incentivize toughness. It incentivizes weakness. It's polar opposite. This seems to be a uniquely Western problem. We've gotten it and had it for, goods, for good for so long that whenever we are even slightly removed from it, we seize up. We don't know what to do. We cannot take action because we don't know what action to take to alleviate the doubt and uncertainty. We simply have never been there before. It's not only very difficult to navigate where you both have never been and refused to go. It's impossible. Instead, we have adopted a different metric other than toughness to deal with our ineptitude in the areas in which we are weak. Hat culture. Instead of actually getting to the bottom of what is causing us to not be good in a certain area, we simply avoid going there altogether. We distract ourselves. We refuse to look at where we suck and instead blow smoke up our asses with different non-starters to avoid the pain of looking at our own suckiness. There are multiple methods of distribution that are frequently used. There's always a hack, a filter, a pill, or whatever. Anything to remove the burden of work from our backs and shove a placebo down our throat in a vain and fruitless attempt to convince us that it actually matters. These things can work on certain occasions, certainly. But the massive adoption of all of them throughout society is troublesome because there's no way that, even with the new lights being shed on some of these issues, that these things can multiply by that incredibly high factor. It's just not possible. What there is no focus on, by contrast, is people dealing with their own individual bullshit. There is no focus on solving the problem, only focus on moving the problem around so that it looks better on social media. The prior American virtue of self-reliance and mental toughness to push through obstacles has not only been removed from our culture, but demonized. It's now, quote, bad for your mental health to push through a hard situation. It's, quote, toxic to carry your cross in silence that telling the whole world, who most likely doesn't give a fuck, by the way, about how much your problems suck their own dicks. Any onus on building a resilient mindset for yourself, and you're immediately condemned by not dealing with your problems in a, quote, healthy fashion, whatever the fuck that means. And this is where self-help comes in. The one thing that is celebrated is when you go get help from someone else. It's totally fine to work on your own problems as long as it involves someone else. Going to a group to relieve your pain and deal with your shit is fine. Dealing with individual problems at the individual level isn't. Our culture's obsession with collectivism and group identity has polluted even the space of a person doing what is best for them. If it isn't using another person to help you up, then you probably should stay away. The mob will most likely make less of an example out of you then. What these idiots don't realize is that it is this mindset that's a toxic one. Imagine only being allowed to do something as important as helping yourself out of a difficult problem if you were to do so by leveraging someone else to help you with your problems. That's not being concerned for someone else's mental health and well-being. That's, quite frankly, authoritarianism. The second reason follows upon the first. It's simply easier to give up control to someone else. It is very hard to look at yourself honestly, especially when what we're looking at can be so fucked up that it's almost scary. The thing that stunts the most progress in people's lives isn't the fact that doing it is going to be really hard, which it most likely will be. The thing that stunts the most progress for most people to get better is the fear of getting started. What's easier is to look for a distraction to avert your gaze from what is actually causing the problem. You don't want to look at what is actually messing you up, so you look for a convenient solution to tell you what could potentially be something else to blame for it. Enter self-help. Again, it's not you that's the problem, according to this crowd of folks. You're fine just the way you are. You can be whatever you want to be. You're special. 
All it's missing is the execution, which they can conveniently give you if you enter their dog shit personal network for 49 bucks a month. This is a big lie getting perpetrated throughout our society and our culture. This is how it destroys people's sovereignty. This is how it infects you and makes you helpless when it promises the inverse. However, even though we can refuse to look at something, it doesn't mean that we can ignore its existence entirely, because we can't. We know it's there. There are some things that are bla that blatant and obvious that we can't wish them away. The elephant in the room is a difficult thing to tell people to look away from and pretend isn't actually taking up the space it's taking up. So, what you do instead is look to go away from the issue entirely. You outsource it to another thing in person and wait for your orders and how did they tell you to solve your individual problem. This still doesn't actually solve your problem, by the way. It just band-aids it up with another, lesser thing for you to focus your attention on. Even though band-aids are a pain in the ass to rip off, they're much less painful than treating a gaping hole that lies underneath them. The easy thing to do is ignore something that needs tended to. It's also an immoral thing to do. Human beings have a moral responsibility to both themselves and the people they take care of, and they care for, to take care of their own shit. Societal initiatives, while bold and noble in nature, cannot distill to every single person on an individual basis. It is up to the individuals themselves to take up the courage to fix up their own shit for themselves, and then work their way out to everyone else. That's the original rule number six, by the way. If everyone were to do this, to take up their own burdens and get on with fixing their shit, the world would be a much better place. It would be far more honest and far less narcissistic. But since it's very easy to look away from what scares you and into what enables your fear, most people don't. Self-help is only a thing because it's a derivative of what people fear. The third reason is due to the fact that, unfortunately, people have either believed or have been encouraged to believe that their own capabilities are insufficient. Humans, no matter what you think of them in any given moment, are much more capable than we would like to think. Our minds and bodies can be stretched to remarkable limits, and our energy can be focused to an incredibly intense degree on accomplishing goals and objectives. But with all this nonsense around self-help culture arising seemingly from thin air, we have become conditioned to believe that in order to do anything, we must receive help for all of our problems. It could be that we need someone else to help us, and it is perfectly fine should that indeed be the case. But we should always look internally to solve our problems before digging in externally to something that could or may not do the trick for us. Remember, get your own house in order before you criticize, or use, the world. I'm of the opinion that A, human beings are remarkably capable creatures, and B, we drastically underestimate our capacity to fulfill what we want to do and how we want to live our lives. This is a call to push your limits and see what you can really do to get yourself into a better position in life. People go to tremendous heights if they work really hard and find something to get really strong in. There are examples of this everywhere. It can be done. This is not a cheesy and meaningless do what makes you happy and you can be anything or whatever you want to be speech. But you can certainly be better than what you are. If you make a plan, stick to that plan, and execute that plan to your own desires, not to those of the self-help cons, you can be amazed at what you can accomplish. Self-help robs us of agency and sovereignty, two of the greatest gifts that we can be given and used to improve our lives. It forces us to adopt a victim mindset and wait for someone else to rescue us when, at the end of the day, we may not need it at all. So, if this is the disease, what is the cure? The cure is the opposite of the self-help, self-reliance. Self-reliance, the epitome of what human beings are capable of, is our aim. But what can we do to get there? We've seen over the duration of our discussion that self-help is a very controlling and limiting way on how to fix your problems. It doesn't do much other than outsource the actual problem to a source that may or may not have your best interest at heart, and probably will end up doing a half-assed job at fixing it in the first place. This could or could not be their fault, but the reality of the situation is that they don't have much skin in the game that is your life as you, than you do. And to be fair to them, why would they? It's not their problems, it's simply their business. 
Your life is both your problem and your business, and you have a responsibility of tending to both when needed. The easiest way to get to the bottom of reversing a harmful trend is to do the exact opposite of what is causing the harm. The easiest definition for how to be happy is, not, is to do not what makes you sad. The easiest definition for how to live a healthy lifestyle is to not do things that are blatantly unhealthy. The definitions of the words and how they can be enforced and fixed are very easy should we choose to look at them in that way. So, what is the opposite of outsourcing your problems? Well, insourcing them. The antidote to all of these problems and the lies that self-help promises is self-reliance. Self-reliance, the ability to seek help, absorb it, and then move on from it, is the key. However, it is the last step that most people have trouble with. They want to hold on. They don't want to let go of the thing that improved their lives in dramatic ways. This is a very understandable thing because it feels good to know that there is a safety net below you. But it's also the wrong thing to do because it ultimately will hinder you more than it helps you. For an example, we'll turn to the, one of the best showings of it that I've ever seen. In his farewell letter to the self-help industry, author and blogger Mark Manson said goodbye to the industry that helped give him quite literally everything in his life. He traveled the world by blogging about self-help. He wrote the most universally beloved and best-selling self-help book in the modern era. It made him rich and famous. He met his wife through the industry. He met famous people, including Will Smith, R.I.P., who he eventually helped co-write his memoir. But yet, he was moving away from it. Why? In Manson's words, he thought that he had moved beyond what it had initially given him. He thought that it was a crutch to both him and his readers. He thought that it wasn't serving either of them anymore. Manson explained that when he started his career writing about these topics, his life was a train wreck. He was needy, insecure, lonely, and an overall fuck-up. He had used self-help more as a tool to help him sort out his own shit, and then applied that tool to people to allow him to feed himself. But now, in his current headspace, he viewed it as unnecessary. He had fixed all of his old bad problems and swapped them in for new good problems. Most of the shit that bothered him all those years ago didn't really bother him anymore. He was largely at peace with everything in his life that had fucked him up. He didn't really care about leveraging self-help to further his success because he felt that he had helped himself to the point where he couldn't really use it anymore. This element that Manchin touched on is a jump-off point that very few people realize. The most powerful thing you can do when helping someone including yourself, is to, eventually, stop helping them. When that person no longer needs help, don't overindulge them or you. Let it go. Move on with your life. Don't fix something that isn't broken. That's a very redundant and stupid waste of your time. If something isn't working, even if it once, or if something is working, rather, even if it once wasn't, it does you no good to keep trying to improve it. And this is the flaw of the maximizer mindset. You can try to make yourself as good as you want. You can make all the money in the world, take all the self mirror selfies you and your Instagram feed can stomach, fuck all the gorgeous women you want, and still be an empty, pathetic, and sad person. You have to know when to say uncle. You have to know when to say when. You have to know when enough is enough. You have to know when to settle. Because if you don't, you'll ride diminishing returns of value until you find yourself up at midnight with a bucket of KFC on your lap and a gun in your mouth. When you allow yourself to figure out things on your own, you give yourself the opportunity for true growth to take place. Self-reliance starts with realizing that this can happen. Once this hits you in the face, it opens many doors in how you can use all these maneuvers and tactics to fix up your life without leaning on someone else that could potentially mislead you. But first, you must know where and how to look at the situation properly. The first thing you can do to help build self-reliance is to change your viewpoint. Analyze currently where you get most of your information from. What sources are you using? Are they credible? What are their motives? How do they run their business? What is their level of skin in the game? Do they have the best interest of you, the consumer, at heart? When you look at where your inputs are coming from and you can see, what, you see if they, and most likely lots of others in mass, are not working, it would be wise to find a different vantage point and try to make that work instead. News travels and spreads largely from a lot of people talking with a lot of other people. Everything is connected, especially in the pursuit of people attempting to get better at things they are not good at. A good example of this lies in the realm of self-defense. Tim Kennedy, who is in the running for my favorite person ever, has recently taken a very proactive approach by helping people learn tactics and strategies to defend themselves. 
Sheepdog Response, Kennedy's company that promotes these trainings, is designed to help enable the ordinary civilian to help preserve and protect human life. Kennedy, a former operations soldier, special operations soldier rather, has taken great interest in what has been going on in America recently, particularly around law enforcement and the crime that has resulted from the demonization of these people. With law enforcement largely either inept or handicapped to stop a large majority of the crimes that go on in America from happening, Kennedy has developed an antidote through sheepdog response to help alleviate this problem. Self-reliance. Kennedy recently released a documentary on his YouTube channel focused on sheepdog response entitled No Help Is Coming. While a harsh statement, this has become, unfortunately, a very true statement. In a world that is increasingly more defined by people acting poorly towards other people, you cannot rely on others to come help you. Much like self-help, we should be treating it as a luxury, but not by any means a guarantee. Taking things into our own hands is the only way we can have a great chance of achieving success, especially in a business as crucial and essential as making sure that you're kept safe from things trying to harm you. Kennedy and others who have adopted this mindset and philosophy have faced blowback from this. Some people think that it's unnecessary that people look into ways to protect themselves. We quote, have people for that, these people say. Nonsense, I say. Improving your skills in an area in which you are weak is never a bad idea in any scenario. Helping yourself is the only way you can guarantee a positive outcome where one is absolutely critical. In some cases, it may force you to abandon an old way of thinking that used to work, but has lost its utility over time. And this is not a bad thing either. Getting rid of bad ideas and mindsets and replacing them with good ones, should they indeed be good, is always a net positive to you and those who are affected by you. It may take a while to sink in, but looking where you have not always looked is usually a more valuable exercise than not. Upon shifting your perspective, the second and much more important thing you can do is take action upon that perspective. You can absorb all the self-help content in the world. You can attend every single seminar on personal growth that you can imagine. You can upload every possible course into your computer and run through all their convenient little bullet points. Maybe some of them are even good. Maybe you can take some little nuggets in through osmosis that will actually help you get better. But one fact remains that is absolutely crucial to understand. They will not, and cannot, make you better. Information is just that. Information. It's a static thing. It cannot change unless the facts around that information are adjusted. Data points do not move because it is an observation within a moment in time in a particular scenario. There must be a catalyst upon that information in order to make it worth anything or any bit of your time. And that catalyst is action. Information, whether it is personal information or that of an outside organization or entity, means nothing without taking the necessary steps to get your shit straightened out. It does not have to be a big action. You can absolutely break it up into small steps. In fact, I would recommend that you do this to start off in the first place. If you try to take on more than you can chew while also dealing with a very intimidating thing that you want to fix about yourself, you can cause yourself some serious brain overload and stress. But it needs to be something. It needs to be one thing that's constructive and reaching for the help that you deserve to give yourself. It could be as simple as writing it down on a piece of paper. That would make it at least a little bit less scary. Pick one thing and act upon it. Afterwards, you can confidently say that you're taking a step, and a measurable step, in the right direction towards helping yourself fix your shit and put you in a better place. So, we have a change of perspective in the first step. However, we're missing one key component. Inertia. Nothing moves forward on its own. Something has to do the moving. There must be a force behind an action or the action will not lead you anywhere. The lack of inertia, of continuous movement, is what kills all improvement, whether it is distilled at the individual level or the level of the broader society and culture. The individual level of inertia is an interesting concept. Like all things around self-reliance, it must start and end with you. Only you can get yourself moving because only you are the only one that can help you move in the first place. You cannot make yourself believe in an abstract thing, and you shouldn't lie to yourself about unrealistic expectations right out of the gate, even though they should be high and pointed at something great that you want to attain for yourself. Believing in yourself, as you currently constitute, is also flawed. The reasoning for this is that the reasoning behind this whole post. The way you are in the mood, mode of trying to get yourself helped and improved is a mode of brokenness. You cannot believe in something that needs to be fixed because, if you could, it probably wouldn't be broken in the first place. You need something concrete, something solid, something you can base that improvement upon. 
And in my opinion, the best choice you have when doing this is the plan that you choose to write down and force that you go down your track, or that you use when go down your track, excuse me. If you have a definitive plan and think that it's going to work, you have every right to believe in it. The plan will most likely morph and change, could possibly not even work, but is the best thing you could put your hope in at the moment, particularly because you don't have anything else to stand on that could warrant such confidence. Momentum is a very powerful thing. Once you find yourself catching some, catching some by checking off, things off, by following the plan, you will begin to make bigger and bigger strides towards helping yourself get better. You will no longer need to rely on anyone else to fulfill how you want your life to go. You can still source from those people and those things because they matter, especially if you have your best interest at heart or if they have your best interest at heart. But they will no longer control your outcome. You will be completely free to decide that. And that is the best thing that we can ever hope to be. Self-help is helping yourself. No one can do the work for you, nor can they truly help you on the way to accomplishing what you want to accomplish. The only thing these people can do is assert greater control over your life, something you cannot afford to lose should you choose to walk down the path of improvement. Only by retaining your sovereignty and taking up the burden of your current and broken state can you trespass the terrain of treacherous people who only want to use you for your most precious resources. Instead, focus the resources inward, walk the path, and come out stronger and better than you were before. And you can thank me and your non-third degree burns later for that result. Okay, so that is the post, everybody. That is the post for this week. I thought that was kind of an interesting way to at least look at something and kind of see, like, you know, maybe just take self-reliance, people. Self-reliance is the big thing. That is the thing that I think we need a lot more of in our culture, in our generation, the young people of America. We're too dependent on people that really don't have our best interest to heart, that don't really know us, don't really want what we really want for ourselves. So go out there, be more self-reliant, see what you can do, at least check in with yourself, all that other good stuff. But I'm telling you how to, I'm done telling you how to live your life for the weekend. Go out, have a great weekend, own the day, open your mind. Thanks for listening, guys. I'll see you next week. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?